0: can walk away welcome everybody to dad talk today I'm your host Eric Carroll thank you so much for being here we have an amazing podcast lined up for you today we are a podcast that talks about all things fatherhood. Before we start, please make sure to visit all of our social media websites, our podcast links, rate, review, subscribe, and help us towards the calls that we are trying to do here today. And no matter what you're going through today, Dad, we hope that this podcast leaves you inspired with your head held high. Keep fighting, and tomorrow you will find progress. Stay cool. Stay, Dad. This episode brought to you by www.dadtalktoday.com. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Dad Talk Today. I am your host, Eric Carroll. Please make sure to join us on social media, Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, Apple and Google Podcasts, rate, review, and subscribe. Also, if you would like to join us on Patreon, patreon.com slash dadtalktoday, you will also get access to our brand new television show. We will be uploading them there for anybody that becomes a member to help our podcast We've got another amazing episode lined up for you today. We are sponsored by the Isaac Law Firm, the Father's Rights Movement, Upstream Growth Consultants, and the house champ, Mr. Yaya McLean, two-time world champion boxer, is the newest real estate agent. He's got his title. Now let him help you get yours. Guys, we hope you enjoy it. Stay cool, stay dad, and we'll catch you later on down the road. All right. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Dad Talk today. We are live with a very, very special guest. Uh, my co-host, Chris Gannon, as always, is joined with us, but today we are just so honored and humbled, guys, to have who we've got on the podcast. Dr. Warren Farrell, how are you doing today, sir?
1: I'm doing very well, especially because I'm looking forward to our show.
0: Yes, sir. So, Dr. Farrell, I think we know a lot, a lot about you, but just to get you a little familiar with our audience, somebody that might not know who you are and some of the things that you've done, you've been spending the last, was I believe, four decades inside of this movement, advocating for certain issues, especially around men, but it didn't actually start off that way. You actually was a board member on now the National Organization of Women. Could you talk a little bit about that and then how you transferred over to talking about men's rights?
1: Yeah, you know, I was doing my doctorate at NYU and the Women's Movement, movement surface. This is back in the late 60s. And um, and I just, um, I was teaching at Rutgers University also, and my student, I would bring up the women's movement as a political movement. And uh, my students said to me, you know, you know, boy, Dr. Farrell, you have fire in your belly when you're talking about the um, uh, women's movement. You know so much about it and it's really exciting and you seem excited. And so I persuaded my doctoral dissertation committee to let me change my doctoral dissertation topic to incorporate uh, the women's movement and its ability to affect the change on men in terms of a uh, predictor of its potential. Uh, you know how stultified all these doctorate stuff, things are. And so um, I, di- I did, um, so they finally let me change um, the, that. And, um, and then I, so when that was happening, I did my uh, first book called Liberated Man on that uh, topic. Um, but then the, in the 70s, the, um, the women's movement, uh, there began to be a lot of um, divorces. And I started looking at how the children of divorce were doing. And I found that there was this huge gap between the children of divorce who had a lot of father involvement and the children of the divorce, of divorce that did not. And the children of divorce who did not have a lot of father involvement were doing really badly what has accumulated um, over the years to be what I now call the boy crisis. Um, and the boy crisis resides basically where dads do not reside. Uh, the boy crisis, and that is in two areas. Um, ch- children of divorce whose fathers are not involved about equally with them, and then children of single mothers um, who uh, never had a father, um, uh, was never or never married to a dad, and uh, most of whom never had a father with them to begin with, um, but the ones that did, the average father when a when a woman has a child uh, with a man she's living with but not married to that relationship usually only lasts about an average of 4 years and so then the children usually lose the father um, after those 4 years and the boys are do, do particularly badly the girls also do most uh, worse as well in about 50 different areas the boys do worse in all 50 of those different areas um but they do even can, they do considerably worse than the girls do and so that I started speaking up on that and saying that to the board of NOW in New York City. Um, this is, uh, and and the NOW's response was, well, you know, we want women to have the freedom to be able to raise children by themselves, and we want women have to divorce to be able to make a decision as to whether it's it's there. Uh, you know, they know what's best for the children. And I said, this is like saying, you know, that male doctors know what's best for for, uh, the patients or male lawyers are better than female lawyers or male presidents are better than female presidents. This is everything you're fighting against and you're not gonna change uh, women's roles um, if you don't also um, alter men's roles. You can't just change one by itself. Uh, A lot especially for heterosexuals, they they live together and for gay couples uh, who raise children, um, it really is very helpful to have the biological father involved as well. And so they were just sort of like, are "You are you turning against us?" And my response was, "No, I'm actually turning for what every woman really wants who has children, which is ha- t- teaching her what's best for the children." <laughs> <laughs> That's <was> my response <laughs> I got, and I knew that I would, yeah, you know, that, that if I kept, continued speaking up um, on the importance of dads. Uh, that I would lose um, a lot of my speaking engagements, but I didn't lose a lot of them. I lost all of them um, when I started speaking up on these issues, and I went from fifty um, at colleges and universities per year to to zero.
2: Wow! And that's what I was wondering how that how that transition took place when you were when you were advocating for women, and then you you made the discovery that you did, and then you said, "Well, hey." You know, let's 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 talk about men and, and how this relationship between the two genders, um, you know, compares and contrasts. And, and that tells you right there, you're you, were, you were, the door was kind of shut. And how did you feel when that happened? Because that was a pretty courageous step for you to take in doing what's right and saying, hey, if we're going to talk about equality here, um, we need to talk about it equally. Um, that took a lot of courage. Can you tell us a little bit about one, what went on in your head during those times when you found out you had zero speaking engagements lined up because because you stood for something something right?
1: It it did affect me. And you know, there was a little part of me that was working like, you know, Warren, you know, just stay with the feminist movement. You were wealthy, you were famous you you know, you know you, every every op-ed you wrote for the New York Times was published and every, you know, whenever people, you know, the Today Show was calling you and, you know, this type of thing. And, you know, I enjoyed that, um, both the attention and also that, you know, the income from that and the, the, and so it was, um but I also thought, you know, I, I now was beginning to get my PhD and I said, you know, soon I'll have my PhD. And, you know, and, and it, it be, would be wonderful just to say, to be free to say what I really, what my research really finds. And where the women's movement is is correct in terms of expanding options for women, for example, or in terms of getting women involved in, in sports or in terms of the importance of equal pay, these are things where I can 100% support the women's movement. But when, when the women's movement is beginning to transition from I am woman. I am strong. As with Helen Reddy years ago, uh, to uh, I am woman. I've been wronged. Um, then, uh, <laughs> then you know, de- developing you know, honing honing victimhood is a fine art. I didn't feel was a good um, a good foundation for women's strength. I felt it was a, a, it would only reinforce in men the fear of hiring women for fear that they would play victim.
2: Well, I've got some good news for you, Dr. Warren Farrell. If, if by any chance, and I'm not saying this will ever happen, the door shuts on this movement, after listening to your audiobook, book, um, The Myth of Male Power, I'm I mesmerized by your voice. If you ever wanted to do like therapeutic, like easy listening to relax people... I think that you've got millions of dollars on the table waiting there for you to like your voice just to read some poems or something. So uh, you'll never be without a job. <laughs> Thank
1: you. I did that once on TV, but I fell asleep while I was doing it. <laughs>
0: <laughs> that's so cool, awesome, I'm Dr. Farrell. So one of the main things that we talk about over here at Dad Talk Today is that a parental alienation. Um, the Dad Talk Today started out five months ago. We we grew really quickly. One of the things that we get a lot over here is we believe in equality you know, we want to promote equal shared parenting. And a lot of times people find exception with us having dad in the name and they want us to take the dad out. And a lot of times I I buck back and I'm like, I think that's the problem. We've taken dad out. We need to put dad back in. And it's like, you know, we're not allowed to talk about some of these problems unless we don't do it as dad. We've got to do it as parents, but there is many issues That a father faces and the more that i watch tv shows and i became more more aware of it i see it kind of hidden in the little crevices and there there was a play that i watched not too long ago and i watched just systematically how anything that a man did was Mm narrow-minded it was weak it was looked at as wrong Mm -hmm. and unless you were really paying attention to it you wouldn't see the little undertones that was going on And so that's that's kind of what we're doing over here. You know, we believe, again, in equality. And I'd like you to speak a little bit about that, because as much as you talk about men's rights and the boy crisis, that's exactly you, you said this does not need to be a men's rights movement and doesn't need to be a woman's rights movement. This needs to be a parent's rights movement. Could you speak a little bit about that?
1: Yes. First of all, I really agree with your decision. If the goal of all of us is to get dad back in, you don't get dad back in by leaving dad out in the title of your show. Uh, that that is that's a lack of courage, um, and it won't change the way of thinking about dad unless we say right up front, here are. And as you saw in the in the um, boy crisis data, yeah, there's more than fifty developmental ways that children benefit, both girls and boys, from the involvement of dad. Ways I had no idea of before I started doing the research for the book. And there are differences between dad style parenting and mom style parenting. And most people, like, you know, uh, uh, women will, for example, uh, let's let's say a, a, a dad is uh, roughhousing, and uh, you know, and he's beginning to, you know, he throws the three kids on the on the on the couch and says, "All right, jump on my back and pin me down before I pin you down." Um, and the kids are going, "All right!" And the mother's going, mm, "I feel like I have this one more child to monitor here," and and she's sort of shaking in her boots, and but she's th- saying to herself, "All right, don't be controlling," you know, and you know, the kids are having fun. Try not to get involved in dis, you know, this um, be a you know, a party pooper. But, but also she's saying to herself, I feel really like sooner or later somebody's going to get hurt here, and she's only about ninety nine percent likely to be right, and so the uh, but, and so when the children you know somebody sticks their their elbow in their sister's eye. And the dad goes, um, you know, you, uh, and then, and then when somebody starts crying, mom goes, I knew it, I knew it. Now mom starts feeling guilty uh, that she didn't sort of intervene sooner uh, because now she's allowed the child to get hurt, and she knew that the child was going to get hurt. And um, and I'm not arguing with that at all. And so the, but the dad then goes ahead and says, you know, okay, you know, Jimmy, you can't stick your your um, elbow in your sister's eye uh, in order to win. You've got to do it, you know, this way. uh, no, no, not that much. That's too rough. But this way is okay. Or you can fake me out. Or you can, you know, you can use body leverage or body, you know, language to, you know, to, 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 to win your way. Uh, okay, Dad, I could it. We got it. And so then they go back to the the roughhousing again, and the children experience something that psychologists call emotional intelligence under fire. They agree intellectually to not roughhouse too too much and too aggressively but when they get really excited about winning, they forget about that. So then the dad goes ahead and says, okay, that's the end of the roughhousing for tonight. Uh, You did this too much, you were were too aggressive this way, and you didn't think about your sister's needs or your brother's needs. Um, Okay, dad, sorry, sorry, we'll do it again. We'll do it right. Nope, no more roughhousing till tomorrow night. And mom says, what, twice in a row this happened and you're now roughhousing tomorrow night as well? Don't you get it? And but it's tomorrow night that the that the uh, payoff comes because when Dad says you can't um, stick your elbow in your your sister's eye or you know be too rough, that now the child knows that it loses the rough housing if um, she or he um, gets too rough with with the uh, with the children and so um, with each other and that is the beginning of teaching children empathy. They have to think of someone other than themselves when they're trying to win. They have to understand the dis- difference between being aggressive, like elbow and eye, versus leverage, versus faking somebody out, which is more assertive. They also learn that in order to get what they want, the rough housing, they have to learn postpone gratification. That is, they have, to, they have to learn to do what they need to do, pay attention to their sister's and brother's needs, as opposed to doing what they want, which is just rent winning and roughhousing. So all of these things are things that children, that dads never explain to moms, mom because they don't do, they don't read the boy crisis, they don't read other, and if they read other books in, or on parenting, most of the books or the articles on parenting don't mention dad style way of doing things like just like in the, in the um, commercials you see, where dad is always the goofball. And so, these things have to be uh, read by men um, and said in a loving way to the, to the moms. So the moms understand that there's something more to the roughhousing and the other eight or nine forms of dad-style parenting that have common sense to them that will lead to the development of the child both socially, psychologically, uh, empathetically, and also in terms of postponed gratification because postponed gratification is the single biggest differentiator uh, between children that become successful and those that do not. And so these are just in one of those nine examples, an example of the differences between uh, what we need to l- learn in this culture about the importance of fathers. There, we, have, you know, we have in the United States um, a, a program called No Child Left Behind. Well, there will always be a child left behind if there is a parent left behind. Yes, sir.
0: And I'd like to say, you know, going back to that about not taking the dad out, keeping the dad back in. I watched you on when you were speaking about father's rights on Oprah and how they just tried to completely blindside you and didn't want you to speak. And you was talking about a second ago about these things that dad's not communicating with mom. One thing I saw you say, Dr. Farrell, that I want to ask you about. And I think you wrote a book on this called uh, Women Can't Hear What Men Don't Say.
1: Yes, yes, did.
0: And that's why, you know, instead of taking dad out, we've got to speak up because they need to know how we're feeling inside because we are perfectly capable, loving fathers. And we're just wanting to get equal time with our children. But could you speak a little bit about what that means? Uh, Women can't hear what men don't say.
1: Yes, um, we as men have to rather than just blaming women or, you know, or just sort of opting out, we have to we have to study how why we are as important as we are. That has been completely left out of the culture. I'm, in, I'm now working with the White House <coughs> to create a father warrior program and which um, I'll be talking about re-socializ- resocializing boys from first, second, third, fourth grade to develop the emotional skills, the communication skills and the consciousness of being needed as a parent Historically speaking, when we've, call, when we've needed boys, like in war or in the workplace, like as firefighters, uh, boys were willing to risk their lives to, um, to make sure we weren't under Nazi rule and risk their lives to make sure that um, people's houses didn't burn down. When we call upon boys, we give them purpose. And now we need to call upon boys and say, and men, and say, we need you to be great dads we need you to be great male teachers in elementary schools. Um, All the evidence is showing uh, that the children who do not have father involvement, that's what creates the boy crisis, that the boy crisis resides where dads do not reside. And so, and this is in, you know, if you want to eliminate suicide, instead of focusing just on suicide prevention directly, get the father involved Father involvement is the biggest preventer of suicide. Lack of father involvement is the biggest predictor of suicide. If we're preoccupied with the opioid crisis and we're saying, oh, you know, twice as many males than females um, die from death, um, from overdoses of opioids, well, look a bit more closely and you'll see that's also connected to uh, father involvement is the biggest predictor of becoming a drug addict. Um, Lack of father involvement is the biggest predictor of becoming a drug addict. If we're saying, oh my God, how terrible ISIS is, and look, you know, how can people in the United States join ISIS and then um, and kill the very people in the very country that they grew up in? Well, if you look more closely, the ISIS recruits are almost all dad deprived. If, you um, if you're looking at prisoners, we all know that 93% of the prisoners are males, but if you look more closely, we see that 80 to 90% of those males are dad deprived males. If you look at school shooters, Uh, we find that school shooters are uh, all males, we know. But if we look more closely, the deadliest school shooters in the 21st century, uh, all five of them have, uh, ones that have killed 10 or more people, all five of them about whose family background we know, uh, 100% of them are dad-deprived males who become the school shooters. And so these are just, you know, a handful of the, the hundreds and hundreds of ways that um, boys without their dads uh, suffer, um, but knowing what, knowing how important dads are from from not only from birth on, but from before birth on. Why children who are premature get out of the hospital so much more quickly and are so much healthier in their first year after getting out of the hospital when dad is at that hospital and dad is with them. Uh, we don't even know all the reasons for this. I know a lot of the reasons and they're in the boy crisis book, but um, I'm sure there are lots of reasons as to the effectiveness of dad that are deeply biologically biological, that are epigenetic, uh, that we don't even know um, 100% about.
2: And Dr. Farrell, I have one question for you. Uh, When we talked about you originally uh, being a part of the women's movement, okay, Uh, we do know that, you know, women, women for the longest time were not treated as equals, they were held back. And I think in in those generations and and the culture like coming out of that, um, there were a lot of females that were like, okay, well, now we have to prove ourselves, we can prove that we're you know, we can do what a man can do. We can, we can fight, you know, we can join the military. Uh, We can work jobs, you know, we can have careers. And, and I think that mentality uh, continued carrying over uh, to the point when we look at the family system, uh, you know, and, and I respect, you know, single mothers, but there's kind of a pride and idea. Well, I do this all on my own without a man or without him. Um, And I, I'm asking you, do you think it would be fair to say how your perspective has shifted since you first were involved with the women's rights movement? Um, that instead of saying, you know, well, I'm, I'm a woman, I don't need a man, I can raise my children, children on my own. Uh, you'd prefer to see women become strong women and, and say, you know, look, I don't need to do this on my own. Uh, what do you think of that statement I just made?
1: Absolutely. Um, Between uh, marriages, I I was uh, married for many years and then divorced for a while and then uh, remarried 25 years ago. And um, the women I dated were almost all women who were single mothers. Aside from the word love, the second most frequently used word was the women saying how overwhelmed they were. And I, I tend to be attracted to very bright women. And so um, a lot of these women were, you know, they, they had the potential for being top level executives and so on, but they didn't, if they knew that if they did that, they would not have enough time for the children. On the other hand, they, um, when they spend time with the, uh, the children, they felt caught between, they didn't feel they were doing well enough with the children. They didn't feel they were doing well enough at work. They were overwhelmed. They were exhausted. And I know that part of the reason that they were interested in me and their, and their life Uh, was because I was a reasonably emotionally intelligent guy that might play a role in the process of relieving them from that type of stress. And so um, there was, uh, so it is, when dads are not involved, three things happen. Women are overwhelmed. Men are left out and purposeless. And children do worse in 50 plus developmental areas. Who is the winner there? No one's winning. Now, when I got involved in the women's movement, Betty Friedan, who was the author of The Feminine Mystique, and Gloria Steinem and I uh, used to have discussions about the importance of both sexes helping each other. And one of the things that Betty Friedan wrote in a book called The Second Stage that got very little publicity was that the women's movement's second stage needs to be the involvement of men, the involvement of fathers, the involvement of men playing the role of fathers when they are fathers. And otherwise women will not have the freedom to be able to go out and earn a good living and be able to be equally involved in the workplace. So if you want equally involved, women equally involved at work, you've got to have men equally involved at home. Now, this is basically what I was saying to the feminist movement is that, you know not only do we need to do this, but the data is showing that the children suffer uh, when we don't do this. And that women's freedom to to not have a man involved is a very precarious freedom. You have the freedom to have children and you have the freedom to not have children. These are freedoms that I will fight for, um, but for women. Uh, But if women have children, uh, when the moment they make the free choice to have children, they make the free choice to put their children's lives and priorities in front of their personal freedom to be able to marry a new man and move to another state and take the new man away from the biological father, um, all of which I was open to. But until I found out that this just plain didn't work, I am a stepdad myself. I thought being a stepdad was just equal to being a biological dad. I was only a hundred percent wrong and so yeah i, I feel i've you know been a good stepdad
2: but How i have humble type of
1: stepdad that um you know, i can't replace the biological father go ahead brother. um
2: one of the we one of the guests we had on recently paul elam and i'm sure you're familiar with him
1: i know paul well
2: uh, we had a question that was asked that was uh, very popular and after we asked it a lot of a lot of people told me like you need to ask more people that question Uh, and that question was um from the perspective of a man okay so most of our audience are divorced separated alienated or non-custodial parents um who might uh feel feel bad about themselves and uh feel like when they talk to a woman that oh well you know i don't have my kids i'm a non-custodial parent uh it's gonna have, have a bad reflection on them uh the question was how should non-custodial or alienated parents uh, identify good traits in a strong woman, a healthy trait, uh, somebody who's going to you know, be there through thick and thin and, and be a general, a, a general moral and ethically sound person to, to have a relationship with?
1: Very important question. Uh, the first way is to watch the way she talks to waiters. The second way is to watch to to see whether she expects you to pick up the check um, after the, the first um, you know the first time out together. Um, to be, before we judge in that pick up the check way, make sure you do not ask her out directly. Make sure that the that the conversation of interest to go out to dinner is a conversation that evolves so that both of you are talking about. Wouldn't it be nice to see each other again? Because if you ask her out then you're responsible for paying. But if you create a joint conversation where both of you are seeing that, we really seem to have a lot in common here. Uh, Should we get together anymore? Yes, we should. Let's maybe get together for dinner somewhere. That would be great. Where would you like to go to dinner? What's your favorite place? Terrific, well, shall we meet there? What time should we meet there? When When she's a complete partner in the process of choosing, She's much less likely to feel resentful about being a partner in the process of paying. Now, if if the bill comes and you're really interested in being sexual with her, and you know that you, you know, if she pays, if she pays the bill, she's going to look at you as a cheapskate. Um, you could say something like, you know, let me take care of tonight's bill, and then maybe the next time you can take care of it, or you can have me over. You can make dinner for me and have me over. This tells her that you're interested in her. You do a little bit of the male role, um, but you're also making a really strong commun- uh, statement that uh, there is an expectation here that because I, I am interested in you um, romantically does not mean that, the, that that means I should pay because every man who pays automatically and reflexively is basically saying this to a woman. He's saying, I am inferior to you until I pay money to become equal to you because paying money is compensation for inequality. If somebody pays me to be a consultant to them and pays me a thousand dollars an hour, then they're saying that I really value you enormously as a consultant, no matter what they're paying me, the more they pay, the more they're sharing their value. And we take a woman to a really nice restaurant and we expect ourselves to pay That is a statement of our insecurity, a statement to her about our inferiority in relation to her. Um, On the other hand, it's so customary that we have to share that that perspective that we have on that is part of respecting her, not a part of not liking her. I dated a woman between my marriages um, who was the president of a local national organization for women chapter in New Jersey. And um, and the um, and I asked her out. Uh, I lived in New York at the time she um, um, and I got together. And, um, and at the end, I said, Well, shall we share the bill? And she said, Yes. And then she stopped and she said, uh, <sighs> She got tears in her eyes and she said, I'm so embarrassed. I'm like feeling like maybe you don't like me. And you want me to share the bill with you? And she said, "I know this is against everything I believe in and fight for, but I just feel I'm so used to having men pay the bill." Uh, she was a very attractive woman, and um, you know that I I just can't even I'm, I'm beside myself here. Now I was very empathetic, you know, because she was acknowledging that she was feeling vulnerable and that she was, you know, um, this was in conflict with her own values and that's and so on. So you know, I, I believe it, I think it was that I, I paid that evening. And then, um, you know, and that, but that was, that was fine when there's an acknowledgement like that, but you'll get the, the point. The point being that uh, we have to have the courage to be willing on a date to risk rejection and not be slept with that evening um, by saying what we want, that they that a relationship is not something that we need to pay for, that we have worth. And when, when women, and ironically, I found that women responded very positively to that, not on the pay part per se, but the fact that I had the courage to speak up. They saw strength in that willingness to deviate from the party line, so to speak, of, of the traditional role. And so, um, and so when you choose women, now, on the other hand, I lost women by saying those types of things. And that's what I'm saying is important. It is important for us guys to have the strength to speak up the strength to not pay automatically and then lose women who um, are not interested in being with a man who won't pay for them. That is the selection process that leads to finding women who are who are not expecting you because you're a man to be the next paycheck in their life.
2: Right, and, and Dr. Farrell, you know, I, I might be asking you to psychoanalyze me a little bit, but <laughs> I'm wondering where the origins and in, in, in the origins of history um, the logic and, and I guess the morals and values that I've been taught come into play and how I might be possibly wrong because I've always, and I don't know where I got it. It's not like my mom or my dad sat me down. It's probably from TV is, you know, anytime I've gone out on a date with a girl um, you know, I've, I've just not even for like the, you know, an intimate reason, but it's like, Oh, you're out with me. I'm going to show you, I can protect you. I can take care of you and yes. I'm going to pay. And the other thing I want to bring up in relation to that is I'm also somebody who generally has always been taught, you know, well you you see a woman coming, you open and hold the door for them. I'm just wondering what your thoughts are on those two things.
1: Yes, well the opening door thing I do um, both for women and for men. If I'm ahead of the person, I open the door for them. Um, But the the reason that women objected to that to begin with was because the feminists were saying, you know, well don't think treat women as being helpless and there, you know, there was a value to that statement. So where do you get that from? You, you only get that, Chris, from you and every, all the rest of us, only get the, the protections, show you a good time, the willingness to pay, uh, that type of thing. We only get that from about a million years of evolution. And when I say a million, I mean not just humans, I mean insects, I mean, um, you know, uh, elks and so on. I mean, buck elks, for example. Um, the, uh, uh, first of all, almost all uh, human and animal mammal species, with some exceptions, uh, about 85% of the females uh, procreate with uh, the, the alpha male. So the alpha male gets 85% of the females and the rest of the, fe- um, and the, the, rest of the males have to divide the remaining 15%. And so you, so the, there is a biological drive on our part. Now, the buck elk example is really fascinating. Um, the, the buck elk is the, is the alpha male, the, the one that's the, al- the most alpha that the 85% of the females uh, mate with is the one that has the biggest at rack. Um, and so when he gets that biggest rack, uh, immediately after he has he procreates, he has to immediately um, get rid of that rack, um, um, or he's likely to die of starvation because getting that rack um, occupy, takes away 30% of his calcium, nutrients, and minerals. And so he's actually the one that appears to be the strongest male is only strongest in, able, in being able to fight off the enemy for a while, but he, in order to fight off that enemy, he has to become the weakest of the males oh to God. appear like the strongest of the males. Oh, wow. And if he doesn't get rid of that rack within, um, o- almost immediately, he's in jeopardy of having winter come along before he can replenish the nutrients that it took to great, um, get that rack. Now, to me, that's a perfect example of what men are about and what women are about that women are very attracted to the to the alpha males and that we males compete to be that alpha male and but our weakness is our facade of strength Mm -hmm. and as long as we are as long as we don't confront our need to be appear strong we will never confront the underlying weakness
0: Yes, amazing. And I would like to pick your head about something like that. Sorry, guys, <laughs> my, my daughter called me a second ago, and I lost my train of thought. But getting back to that, um, Dr. If you Farrell, hadn't,
1: you'd, you'd be in trouble with me. <laughs> <laughs>
0: uh, but getting back to that with men's mental health is, is really becoming an issue here lately. And I see we see so many people coming through here with divorce and parental alienation, and they are just so afraid to speak out about it. And I see a, a lot of times in public, it looks like they just have this image of the angry dad. And I would say it's more of a person that doesn't know how to express their feelings because they're told they can't cry. They're not allowed to speak out. They're not allowed to hurt. Could you
1: talk a little bit about that for me? Well, first of all, you're 100% correct. And when I first started getting involved with um, you know these issues and, and understanding men more than I had in the past when I was involved with the feminist movement, you know, I'd meet some of the fathers in the father's rights movement and they'd come up and say, you know, this legal, this legal thing happened to me and this legal thing happened to me and I'd hear this anger, I'd hear this bitterness um, and I think, oh, you know, bitter, angry dad. And then I'd, I'd say something like, you know, do you have pictures of your children? And suddenly the entire face changed Not- and out would come poor tears. Um, and he could barely get out his wallet and show me the pictures of children, the children without crying. And I thought, this is, you know, this this facade of strength, this facade of legality, this facade of rational, uh, was all covering up this deep heart that he had inside of himself. And so I've been doing expert witness now for the last 30, 40 years. Work where dads usually call me and say, I'd like to be an equally involved with my children after divorce. And I said, and I go out oftentimes. I either um, go out and visit them at their home for a weekend, or I, if, if they don't have as much money, I'll do a video Skype interview to see how they parent with the children. These dads are almost to a, to a dad, absolutely extraordinary. Uh, they care enough to fight for being involved with the children. And yet I see them love their children. And this isn't just cherry picked. I require the fathers to um, have me videotape them when the children just get up and they're grouchy, when the children are getting ready to go to bed and they're tired, when the children are working on, on cooking dinner with them. And I see things that nobody can fake. Where the children will reach over and they'll take their dad's hand, or they'll they'll voluntarily put their arms around their their dad. Or they'll voluntarily kiss their dad. Um, you know, the children don't voluntarily do things uh, because they're told you know act of affectionate toward dad when they're three or four years of age. They just do or they don't. And so um, when when the judge can see these video skypes. Um, and any judge that does see them, that will almost automatically say, "This child cannot go without that father. Uh, this this would be a crime because the judge is is impacted by that." And so, um, but there's there is alienation-wise. Let's I'm going to be really honest now and say some things that are just data um, accurate, but are not going to be easy to hear. Okay. Um, Gwyneth Walker um, did, and I talk about this in in the Boy Crisis book, uh, Gwyneth Walker interviewed children five years after divorce and asked the children three basic questions. Does your dad badmouth your mom? Does your mom badmouth your dad? Do they both badmouth each other? Does neither badmouth each other? That's four questions. And um, she found that um, children said that uh, only 11% of children said that neither sex, neither mother nor father badmouth the other. That's deeply sad. Um, But on the ratio of the dad's bad-mouthing the moms versus the mom's bad-mouthing the dad's, moms were four and a half times like more likely to bad-mouth the dads than the dads were to bad-mouth the moms. And when I hear a dad, um, you know, when I'm with a dad observing him, um, if he's bad-mouthing the mom, he's got... (laughs) He's got trouble with me, um, and if he doesn't learn the lesson in the first like little um, uh, mini lecture, um, and he continues that, uh, either I'll withdraw from um, supporting him, um, or uh, and here's the problem with bad mouthing: um, when a child, particularly you, when a mom bad mouths the dad, which is the most common form of bad mouthing, the boy looks in the mirror and he sees his body language, his hair, his nose, his eyes are a lot like his dad's body language, hair, nose, and eyes. And he begins to fear that the things that were said about his dad, your dad is irresponsible, your dad is a liar, your dad is a narcissist. Uh, Those are three of the most common things. He fears that maybe he's a narcissist, he's a liar, he's irresponsible. Because when a mom or dad bad mouths the other parent, they're bad mouthing the half of that other parent's gene, the half of their genes of that child that are that that emanate from the other parent. And so you you cannot bad mouth the other parent without abusing the child.
0: And let's be honest, Doctor Farrell. So a lot of times, you know, you'll hear a father that is talking about that mother. There's already stereotypes against dads already. We already know about that. That's a lot. That's a lot of what you talk about. Then you see this father talking to, you know, just really bashing on a mom, talking how she's a narcissist, the whole nine yards being public about it. It actually kind of points the finger back at you and makes you look like the stereotype that you're trying to fight against.
1: Yes. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Yes. And, sir. And, and Dr. And, Farrell. It, it it, one other thing, Chris, I just want to spend a minute. Is that okay? Oh, no, yes, go sir. for it. Yes, sir. Um, go, sir. You were talking about, men not crying and men not expressing their feelings. And this is a whole um, new opportunity for men. Um, historically speaking, we have, men were trained to be heroes. To be heroes in war, we had to risk our lives to be disposable. Men were never, uh, women were not the second class citizens. If they were, we are the, were the third class citizens. We were the citizens that were expected to die so women would live that makes our role one of subservience to women. So every man was trained, each generation had its war. Every man was trained in that uh, to prepare himself for war, which was to prepare himself for disposability if he wanted to be thought of as a real man. He often had a picture that maybe dad pointed to of an uncle that had died in the Marines. And you know, that uncle was uh, that picture with the the uncle in the Marine uniform was that the child got the point and that uncle was a real hero. He sacrificed for the country. And if he needs a t- and, and and so that being called a hero was a social bribe for boys to be disposable. Disposable in work or disposable in war. To develop what I call in the boy crisis book, heroic intelligence. But now for the first time in history, we have a much smaller percentage of boys who need to go to war and die in war and we have more automation in many workplaces and a smaller percentage of women men who are needing to to die at work although firefighters and floods will increase that that percentage of men that will die at work um, and so we do have so we have an opportunity here for the first time in history for men to make an evolution from heroic intelligence to health intelligence Health intelligence is more concerned about men preserving their health rather than men preparing themselves for disposability. And part of health intelligence is emotional health. Part of emotional health is being able to express your feelings rather than repress your feelings. We have millions of messages that are coming to us all the time that men who are successful become successful not by expressing feelings, but by repressing feelings. When Lois Lane takes zero interest in Clark Kent, um, but when she falls in love with um, Superman, um, then she expects Superman to cry, but only because she never would have had an interest in, in Superman if he wasn't Superman to begin with. And once he's Superman, he's allowed to cry, but he's not allowed to cry if he's Clark Kent.
2: Wow. Wow. That's the second time you've just blown my mind (laughs) on this podcast and I thank you for it. Uh, I want to rewind a little bit to when we were talking about parental alienation and you said it, you know, it's abuse. It's a form of abuse. And we know that majority of the people who watch our show are alienated or non-custodial parents, but uh, we do know that there are some alienating parents who watch our show. There are some, uh, custodial parents who watch our show who have made false allegations against the other parent. And I I think we would be very um, just wrong if we did not ask you, if you had one of those parents who was doing the alienating of a child in front of you watching this broadcast right now, um, number one, do you think it's ever too late to end it? Uh, Because that alienator knows that they've told lies. And number two, uh, what advice would you have to them on stopping the alienation? How can they do it?
1: I would, um, first of all, if you are an alienating parent, I would like you to think of this as a great opportunity, a great opportunity to tell your child, I am, you know, the other day when I was talking about mom, you know, I was so hurt and angry uh, that I said this about her and that about her. And to and then just to choose a couple of things, your mom is loves you so much and I, I care about your mom because she loves you so much. And that was my fault for saying something negative about your mom. And if I do that again, I, I give you permission to say, Dad, don't say bad things about my uh, mom. She's our mom. We love her too. And it puts us in a very bad position. And so if you're saying to your child, I am sorry, I did something wrong. That is a wonderful example for your child to be able himself or herself to be able to say i'm sorry i treated somebody at school badly i bullied somebody at school and then share with your son or your daughter that 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 you love them so much that when they when you feel alienated or you don't have time with them you get so hurt you get and that hurt behind that hurt you express it as anger But underneath that anger, there's hurt. Explain to your child that anger is vulnerability's mask. Your child won't get that right away. But as your child gets angry at somebody at school and you say, you know, what happened at school? Well, you know, so-and-so bullied me. So-and-so called me a name. Somebody said I was a loser. Somebody said I was an orphan. Somebody said this or that. And did that hurt you? Yes, that really was bothered me. I guess it did hurt me. So you got angry, right? Yes. So anger was a mask for the vulnerability that you felt. Now the child will get it. So use the mistakes you make as a teaching opportunity for your children, a teaching opportunity as to how to be vulnerable, how to apologize, how to move on. It is never too late to start that.
0: Yes, sir. So, Dr. Farrell, I'd just like to say what an utmost honor it is to have you on this podcast. And it would be wrong of me. We don't want to keep you too long. we got like 10 more minutes. But I I just wanted to ask you, for somebody that's been doing this for four decades and you see this epidemic with fatherlessness, if I was a person coming into this and say you was to retire tomorrow, we hope you, we've got you for another 20, 30 more years, but if you was to retire tomorrow, where should I start with my research and where would you suggest we should pick up and carry on the work?
1: I'd say the first place, um, the most, what I basically did when I wrote The Boy Crisis was um, gathered the, what I felt was the most responsible research um, that was available and then try to take it away from being academic um, and write it in a fun way that that everyone could enjoy. And part, um, there, there's 10 chapters in the boy crisis that are called um, the difference between dad deprivation and dad enrichment. I would encourage you to focus particularly on those chapters. The chapters that I've gotten the best feedback about from both mothers and fathers is the chapter on what do dads do differently? Understand what you do differently, whether it's with the um, uh, with the rough housing that I talked about before, whether it's be, being more likely to enforce boundaries, moms and dads um, uh, set boundaries very much the same way, um, but dads are far more likely to enforce boundaries than moms are. And if you're not a good boundary enforcer, and if, if you're, sometimes this re- is the reverse, and if you're a dad and you're not a good boundary enforcer because you have a daughter that's the apple of your eye and you're always giving in to her, you're not doing that daughter any, um, any service. You are doing her a disservice. You're, you're 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 creating a princess, not a not a responsible, strong uh, daughter that can be effective in the world. Remember, boundary enforcement is the prerequisite to postpone gratification. Postpone gratification is the prerequisite to being successful or th- feeling good about yourself. So get a real grasp on uh, what there is that dads and moms do differently so you can share from your heart and from your brain with mom, what the purposes are of what you're most likely to do as a male through evolution. We are different than women. And we, d- we, we both bring a lot to the parenting table. As I mentioned before, you know, the best parent is both parents and um, children are left behind, when either one parent is left behind. And so the arguments that you tend to have with your wife or your husband, do not treat them as arguments treat them as part of the checks and balances of parenting. Um, You know, we all know that even though we might hate Republicans or hate Democrats, that the country is probably better because there are both Republicans and de- Democrats. We might hate the judiciary, or hate the executive, but we understand that the ex- that these branches are checks and balances on each other. The same is true with fathers and mothers. Um, so when your son or daughter says, "You know, can I climb the tree?" and Mom says, uh, uh, "No, sweetie, maybe in a few years," and Dad says, "Okay, climb the tree, but be careful," and then they go, "What? You can't have that child climb the tree at the, you know this age? You're too young." And then they negotiate a way of of climbing the tree a little bit. But the the father standing out underneath the tree to protect the child if it falls, then the child gets the best of both worlds. But if you're a dad, and you don't know that that child climbing the tree increases his or her um, physical intelligence, intelligence. The IQ increases by the child making thousands of little decisions as to which branch to go on, which branch to avoid, um, and h- how to be flexible and how to think very quickly on its feet um, or on its hands and knees as it's climbing the tree. And so these are all things that it's so important. Just like women had to prepare themselves with master's degrees to become uh, and you know to, to become involved in the workplace. Uh, we have to prepare ourselves. Um, to read not only the boy crisis, but everything that we can get our hands on about the value of dads to be able to communicate in a loving way with moms. And before we communicate with moms, we need to not just say what we know, we need to listen to their best intent. Uh, Good communication always starts with the ear and then goes to the mouth.
2: Dr. Farrell, what you just said reminds me of, uh, and I'm not sure, I'm sure you're familiar with the documentary, Casualties of War, Uh, by Yaya McLean. One of the things he talked about there is it's very easy to identify a um, grown up who grew up fatherless um, by examining like how they go to the bathroom, like a lot of men will sit down to go to the bathroom. And it, it was really interesting because they said, well, do you know why, you know, that man always goes and sits down? Well, it's because his father was never there to teach him how to do it standing up and i thought that was just it was very interesting like what you were just talking about right now with the child uh climbing the tree where the mother would have said no don't climb that tree you could get hurt Mm -hmm. it's the male side that's uh complementary to the mothers like be careful but hey you know what yes climb that tree because you're going to gain strength by doing it you're going to gain intelligence when that branch breaks and you step on it you're not going to do it again Uh, That was, that was another, that's three times on this podcast you've blown my mind. So thank you.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Very, very welcome. And you're absolutely right. There is, you know, father is another difference between dads and moms will be dads will often say, you know, if they're out camping, um, which is very important to do with children and, you know, and the child, you know, is, will be, you know, they know that there's a lake somewhere in the area and the child will go ahead and, you know, try to find the lake. And the dad will be more likely to say, you know, okay, you know, um, you know, go ahead, you go d- down this path directly. And the mom says, no, no, you got to go with it. You got to go with him or her to find the lake. And, you know, the, and the father will go, no, let them find the lake. Well, they could get lost. They could get lost. Um, yeah, it's laid out. Um, they can, it's not that far. Um, I'll follow them a little bit, but I, I don't want them to be dependent upon me. I want, and suppose they get lost, suppose they get lost. Then suppose they get lost for a while. Um, and so eventually we'll find them. They'll find us. But they'll learn how to take responsibility. They'll learn how to, um, you know, sort of uh, develop uh, the ability to find find the trails and find their way. And so there's not a right or wrong answer to how far that child should go. But the, again, the checks and balance parenting, mom and dad need to talk that through and respect that the that getting lost. Is a can be a positive in a child's development. Um, and that's just a metaphor, of course.
2: And, and once again, we had uh, Paul Elam on a few weeks ago and we, we asked him a question and I know you have a very busy schedule, but uh, Paul said that he would agree to do it if you did, if eventually coming back in the future and scheduling a podcast with yourself, Eric, I, and Paul, Um, to all get together. And uh, I mean, honestly, on that podcast, it would probably be Eric and I stepping back and watching you two converse and maybe asking a question here and there. But we want to bring the two great minds together on a show. So if you could think about that and let us know um, in in the future, we'd appreciate it because we'd love to do that with you.
1: Absolutely. The answer is yes, I'd love to. And um, Paul is a wonderful guy. And I'd I'd always do almost anything with Paul. So that would be fine.
0: That's awesome. Thank you so much, Dr. Farrell. Uh, uh, we're going to go ahead and start wrapping this thing up. I just want to say again, thank you so much for your time. Can you tell us about some of the things you've got coming up and links where people can find you?
1: Yes. Uh, the one thing I have coming up is uh, working a great deal with the White House to try to get a boy crisis put on the um, either mentioned in the State of the Union message or uh, mentioned as an executive order. Uh, so that's um, you know, possibly coming up in the next few months. Which will be huge if it happens, um, um, but I've, I've been told it will happen. Not just not exactly when or where. It's just a matter of logistics. So that's huge. Um, B. If you're if you are um, interested in the boy crisis book you know, and money is an issue for you, uh, the least expensive version of it is um, is on is on Amazon. They have a sale on it now. Um, but also a lot of you. We we were all just talking before the show. About how the audible version has has been very appealing to a lot of men and women, um, being able to um, go in a car and listen to uh, the audible version and um, and hear uh, me and John Gray, the my co-author, um, talk and uh, explain that is usually a very uh, productive way of using commute time or or um, you know being at the gym and you know, being on a treadmill. So I've gotten a lot of positive feedback about the um, about the audible version of uh, of the boy crisis and that is on amazon and that's on sale also
0: Yes, sir well thank you again dr farrell just to give a shout out to our sponsors real quick that we forgot to do at the very uh top we are sponsored by the isaac law firm upstream growth consultants the father's rights movement and the house champ two-time world champion mr yaya mclean is the newest realtor in the atlanta georgia market He's got his title, Let Him Help You Get Yours. All right. (laughs) All right. (laughs) Guys, we will see you next time. Thank you again,
2: Dr. Farrell.
1: It's a pleasure talking with both of you. You're both very thoughtful and you ask great questions and you listen really well. Thank you, Dr. Farrell.
0: This has been an episode of Dad Talk Today with your host, Eric Carroll. Thank you so much for being here today, Dad. It means the world to us. Join us next week as we release a brand new podcast. And until then, visit us over at www.dadtalktoday.com where you can find merchandise that helps support this podcast as well as a contact form where you can send in your questions, concerns, comments. You just need to reach out to somebody, need somebody to talk to. Send us that email, brother, if you're here, you're family. Until then, we will see you next time. Stay cool, stay dad.